Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Hi, hello, good morning. Uh, it is, uh, hey, good morning. Yeah, there it is, there it is. Uh, it is so good to uh, be back and to get through uh, the book of Ephesians together. I'm, uh, I loved being here in November so much, and I got done with it, and I was like, Gianna, can I come back? And she was like, yes, and that is the sum total of how this happened. <laughs> um, I... Uh, well, I also just like felt like a, a little like prompting from the Lord just to uh, get into the book of Ephesians. Like there, I, I was thinking like what would it what would be fun to spend like some extended time looking at, and I could not get away from the book of Ephesians. The Holy Spirit just kind of put it on the heart and uh, wouldn't let it go away. And so when those th- kind of things happen, we just kind of try to listen and respond. So um, uh, that's kind of the way God led, and now I'm imposing that on you. So 12 weeks in Ephesians. Um, so here we go. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to walk into this series. Ephesians is chock full of all kinds of good stuff. Uh, the kinds of stuff that we need to have um, in our hearts and our minds on a regular basis, the stuff we need to be like chewing on, the stuff we need to be meditating on uh, day in and day out. And so we're just going to plunge right in. If you were here in November at all, you know my style is just kind of have nose in the text all the time. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, that's awesome. If you got it on your app or something, like open up. Uh, we'll have the the passage come up here on the screen as I read it through. Um, there's, there's a whole lot going on here, but I it's easy uh, in Ephesians, it's easy in Paul's letters to get like bogged down with the details uh, sometimes and to get, um, the details are very good, but sometimes we miss the bigger picture. Um, and so I like taking bigger chunks. That's why I'm doing 12 weeks, about two weeks in each chapter. I like the bigger sections. Um, so I'm just going to read verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians 1 here. This is kind of the intro. Um, and I, I want you to just kind of let it wash over you. Maybe, maybe close your eyes and, and, and hear it uh, if that is helpful for you. Maybe read along if that's uh, your preferred style. Um, but yeah, listen. Listen for common themes. Listen for what the Spirit is saying. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness 
of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works all things out uh, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Uh, we're going to see this pretty much every week in our series on uh, Ephesians. Paul, throughout this letter, goes on these like uh, almost like unrestrained rants at times. He, he gets on this like praise cycle and just like can't help himself and just kind of explodes into like a little, a little moment of of worship, and so uh, sometimes it's like, "Hey, settle, Paul. Like, we gotta get back to get back to the main point." And so, trying to decipher what the main point is, uh, sometimes a bit of a trick. But we'll get to that here in just a moment. I want to start by talking about verses one and two, trying to give us a good like foundation, a good sense of what's um, what's the foundation for this. Uh, this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul is imprisoned as he's writing this. As he's writing this letter, and that's really important to keep in mind. It's, it's good to note uh, imprisonment in this particular context was, was more akin to what we would think of as house arrest. It's like he was, um, he was in a particular, in particular quarters and might have had some like, room to, to move around, but was not allowed to go anywhere. He was imprisoned, but it was more of a, more of a house arrest sort of situation. And his imprisonment doesn't filter its way into what he specifically says all that much. We get a comment about it in, in chapter 3, and we'll talk about it then. Um, but it's good to let, it, let that backdrop just kind of seep into what everything we hear from, from Paul. This is a guy who has lost liberties in a significant way for the cause of Jesus, and yet is still erupting in praise in such significant ways. Paul in to Ephesus. Ephesus was an interesting, uh, bustling uh, city in its time. Uh, the place of um, the temple to Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, pretty cool to look at, but also an indicator of what the Ephesian people were, um, um, their, their cultural setting, right? Ephesus was a city caught up with the worship of a whole lot of things uh, that weren't necessarily God. And I, I think in that, um, in that one little way, uh, maybe actually a significant way, we can find some sort of uh, commonality uh, in a society that caught up with the worship of a whole lot of things, um, not necessarily the right one. There's a couple of uh, key terms here in 
uh, just these couple opening verses. First, look at the end of verse 1 here. To God's holy people, to the, the saints, the holy ones, the set-apart ones. That whole constellation of words, holy, uh, sanctified, saints, it's all tied to the same root, the hagias, uh, built off of the, the Old Testament word, kadosh. Uh, holy, what it is to be holy, to be set apart. Uh, one of the things, I, uh, Paul talks about holiness all throughout his letters, but when he's talking about holy people, about saints in particular, he never uses it in the singular. He always uses it in the plural, holy people together, saints, set apart ones. Um, individual holiness is important, but there's no way to be an individually holy person outside of the context of a community. To the holy community there, the set-apart community, the, the community that has not acquiesced to the pressures of their day, one way or another. I hear increasingly Christians uh, who are more comfortable uh, sharing um, time and space with folks who are ideologically similar on, on political spectrums and not so much in church context. We can be more, fam more, more familiar with our Republican friends if we're Republicans or more familiar with our more easy to get along with our Democrat friends if we're, if we're Democrats. And, and Paul right away is saying we are set apart. We're not like, we're, we, we don't fall into those sorts of categories. We are different. We follow Jesus. We follow a different way. It's important that we remember our most fundamental identity is that which we have before Christ. In Christ, we are set apart in that way. To God's holy people, the faithful ones in Christ Jesus, when you and I hear the word faith and the word faithful, we think of kind of two different things. Um, and the ancient uh, Greek concept was not actually all that different. We hear faith and we think, okay, yeah, mental assent, I kind of believe in a particular thing. Um, I believe in that. And we hear faithful and we're like, oh, yeah, kind of committed to that thing. Uh, the word pistis in, in Greek, that word for faith, is also that same word that's used for faithful. In other words, faith implies faithfulness, and faithfulness implies faith. You cannot, you cannot move the, the belief portion of that concept into a different category than the faithfulness part, the dailiness, the, the unpretty, like just clunky daily faithfulness that we're called to. Paul isn't saying here uh, to the, the special faithful Ephesian Christians, he's saying, no, to the church in Ephesus, I know you're faithful because you have faith. Two more concepts here, grace and peace. Have you ever noticed in Paul's letters, he likes to start with this like little greeting, grace to you, and then if we turn to the very last verse, he sends, he sends us off with grace to all of you. I like to think of that grace as not necessarily, it's obviously about the grace that happens before the letter and that grace that happens after the letter. But I also think that when Paul begins and ends a letter with the same concept, he's saying, I understand that you reading this letter, you hearing these words from me, like this is an actual act of grace. Us being here together, hearing these words read out loud, looking at them closely, it's, an, it's a means of grace. It's, a, it's an act of grace in our lives just by being here and being under the, under the instruction of these words. 
grace, unmerited favor. Didn't earn it. The most fundamental of all of the fundamental concepts of this life with Jesus thing. Grace. Unmerited. You don't have to get it right to fall under the wave of the love and the mercy and the goodness of Jesus. Grace and peace are borrowed Shalom from the Old Testament. Paul has this Jewish background, right? So we can't get very far. We can't go more than a couple of verses without feeling some sort of like Old Testament-y thing kind of seeping through. And so we'll spend plenty of time looking back at Old Testament roots of this. But Shalom, full life goodness, filled up to the brim, not at ease, but at peace. Often at peace when we're not necessarily at ease. All is right, even when all doesn't feel that way. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in Greek. One 200-plus word sentence in Greek. Now, if, uh, if I, so I teach at Bushnell, if this was a paper and uh, a student were to begin that paper with a 200-word sprawling sentence about 14 different things, I would have to take points off. <laughs> I, what we like is concise thesis statements and then supporting arguments that develop in the paragraphs after. Paul's like, I don't care. Let me give you 200 words. He's just like sprawling. I feel like he's been like pent up in this like, uh, in this whatever like situation he's in. He's pent up and he's just like excited to be writing and he's just going for it. And it's like, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. That's how this reads in Greek. Like our, our English translators have been gracious enough to get, I mean, you see like we've broken it, broken it up into sentences, um, but that's just to keep us from losing our minds uh, as, we, as we try to read through. Uh, so I know that you came here this morning thinking, man, I really hope that we get an extensive lesson on Greek grammar as part of the sermon. Uh, but I, I, I'm choosing to not go that route. There's a few different uh, approaches. One, I'm not sure I'm good enough at Greek to even like uh, totally get it, but... There's a few different ways of, of kind of understanding what it is that, that Paul is getting at here. And a good principle in general when, when we're reading our Bibles is to pay attention to the stuff that comes up again and again and again. Like there's several repeated themes, a couple, what I'm going to call it like guiding themes throughout the course of this passage. Um, but yeah, there's so many different approaches. We could look at verses three through six as being about God the Father. God the Father is kind of the, the fundamental um, subject there. And then verses like 7 through 12-ish are more about Jesus, the Son. God is the Son. And then verses 13 and 14 are clearly about the Holy Spirit. So we get this whole like picture of the full like Trinity. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Paul, long before the Trinity gets formalized like as a doctrine that the church believes, Paul is doing the, the work of, of talking about all three pieces. That's, that's pretty cool. But guiding themes, 
An, e- an easy one to overlook is this concept of being in Christ. I, I titled this, this whole series, Living Out Our Union with Christ. Living Out Our Union in Christ. Our, this concept of union in Christ sort of uh, unifies Paul's thought in some way, but it's really easy to overlook because it's, it's just kind of built into the, um, the fabric of each of these sentences. But notice the repetition of in Christ, in him, in Christ, through Christ. Verse 1 has in Christ. Verse 3, bless us in the heavenly realms. The blessing is in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 11, in him. Verse 13, in Christ. Do you see it over and over and over again? Paul is saying that there's so many different ways that Paul talks about salvation over the course of uh, his letters, but the one that helps make all of them make sense all in one place is this idea of union with Christ. You can't talk about any realm of like the, the blessing that God has, has like poured into our life without union with Christ, without this idea that we are participants in the salvation that God has done for us. We are united to Christ. And so Paul takes three chapters to really talk about this union and, and explain what it means, explain a lot of different um, implications of it. And then he takes the last three chapters of the book and says, now go live as if you are a unified group. Unity is already true of you, and you are unified in Jesus. Now go live as if you are unified in Jesus. Most of what Paul does is say, here's what's true, now go live as if it's true. You are united to Christ. You and I are united to Jesus. We are adopted. We are the sons and daughters of Jesus. Um, and, And God's adoption program is, you be united to my son, Jesus. We're sons and daughters of God because we are united to the one who is the son of God. We'll talk more about union with Christ as we go along in the coming weeks. But I just want to highlight it's everywhere here in this opening passage. And so as you go back and read through these passages, just pay, pay close attention to what's going on here. Another guiding theme through the course of these few verses is God's will. We get a few different words about God's will. So right there at the very beginning, uh, we learned that uh, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by what? By the will of God. How do we see God's will working out? Well, we see it through language of like choice and language of predestination. Oh no, week one, we have to talk about predestination. I got into that this week and I was like, oh good, week one, this is, this is fun. This is a good topic to be uh, alienating uh, <laughs> people on different sides of... of age-old debate. Good, good. I'm ready to handle this. Um, it's very interesting. It, one funny thing about the, the whole predestination debate, there's, there's, more, there's folks who lean more on the free will side. Um, there's folks who lean more on the, yeah, God just like planned it and that's what's happening side. Um, and, and both sides like to present this question, do you believe in predestination? Which is a wholly unhelpful question, right? The word is here a few times. He predestined us. Uh, 
In him we were chosen because he predestined us. So the question is not whether you believe in it or not. It's like, how do you, how do you articulate what you believe about it? What, what do you believe? And our natural tendency is to hear the word God chose or God predestined and whatnot and think, oh, God chose some and didn't choose others. God predestined some and didn't predestine others. And like that, that starts to get, that's a uncomfy, that's uncomfy, right? We don't really like that. But the funny thing about scripture is that when we're talking about this choosing, um, that's not really the context in which it's brought up. It's not the some are chosen and some are not. There's usually a much different emphasis. And for a good illustration of this, I want us to go back to our Old Testaments real quick. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. Um, or you can just hear it read as that's better. Exodus chapter 19, which just as a quick reminder, is in that in-between space. God has already delivered his people from slavery. He's set them free. Deliverance, that's the paradigm that the rest of the Old Testament uses. God is a saving God. How do we know that the Exodus saved us from slavery? But Exodus 19 is between that delivering moment and the Ten Commandments. We like to live as if, oh, or we think often in, our, in terms of our relationship with God as if Ten Commandments came first and then the deliverance. If I get this thing right, if I can do X, Y, and Z, then God will be pleased with me and then I can, no. That has never been the case. And it, not even in the Old Testament. We, th- we, th- we miss the unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament sometimes. We're like, oh, God was doing something different. No, God was doing the same thing in a different way, yes. But God delivers, and then he says, here's Ten Commandments, because I think your life is going to go way better this way. God delivers, and then he gives commandments. And Exodus 19 is right in between. And we hear, we hear some reasoning that God gives for why he chooses his people. God has, Moses has gone up on the mountain, he's gone up to Sinai, and God visits him, and he says this, tell, go tell the people this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully, now if you obey me fully, again, after the deliverance, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. I'm picking you, Israel, you small, little, dumpy, kind of like out of the way people. I'm picking you out of everybody. Why? Here. You will be to me, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, same word we just saw in verse 1, a, a set-apart people, a different kind of people. You will be to me a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? A priest mediates between God and man. A priest brings the presence of God to the rest of mankind. And God's plan from the very beginning was, Israel, you go be mediators of my goodness to everybody else. I'm picking you as a treasured possession because I love everyone. I want you to be the blessing to everybody else. So anytime we talk about choosing or God's will or whatnot, we have to come back to this fundamental piece. God has always chosen a few to be a blessing to all. We get so lost in the weeds when we, 
when we get into this conversation, God chose some and didn't choose others. Like that is never the point of scripture. The point is God chose you to be a blessing in your world, in your community, your immediate sphere, that bigger sphere that your your family, those people that you work around, your acquaintances, your friends. God has chosen you to be a blessing. That's what God's up to when he's choosing. He doesn't pick the best and the brightest. I mean, look at us. Here we are. <laughs> but he chooses. Why? Why is it that way? I have no idea. Um, if we go back to Ephesians 1, a, a word that sticks out in the middle of all this talk is the mystery. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. We don't do real well with mystery, do we? We, uh, we like uh, black and white. We like one plus one equals two. We like clear answers. We like scientific explanations. And here Paul is, Paul, the foremost theologian of his time, maybe foremost theologian ever, uh, is saying, uh, mystery, meh, don't know. Don't know, don't always know. And um, it's our invitation to get comfy with that at some base level. Say, I, I don't know why God works this way, but he, God sure does work this way. That's okay, that's a good spot to be. Usually living in the tension of the things that we don't know, that's, that's usually a growth spot, right? That's usually uh, starting to push, push through some of the gray. That's good, good stuff. God always chooses a few to be a blessing to all. And a final guiding theme. Uh, I don't know if you heard it as we got through, but three times, it's sort of a refrain. There's actually some... Um, some scholars who posit that this is this opening like long sentence is is almost functions almost more like a hymn, more like a song, meant to be used in like a church or a, a liturgical context. And like one of the clues, I mean, it it, might, it may or may not be that, but one of the clues in that direction is this sort of refrain to the praise of His glory. When Paul gets to the end of a little like <laughs> happy rant. <laughs> Uh, he, get, he says, to the praise of his glory. In verse, uh, in verse 6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, again, he closes the whole sentence with, to the praise of his glory. Paul's a great example for us in this way. He reminds us that our theology leads to doxology. So the word, in other words, the, the words that we believe about God, the things that we believe about God will lead to our worship of God, should lead to our worship of God. The thing is, you and I are always worshiping something. We are creatures who, um, we like to think of ourselves as like nice, rational creatures. We, we like think our, think our way towards good decisions and uh, today I'm going to do this because I love that or, or whatnot. Because I know that. Is there ever a gap between what we know and what we do? Hmm. That's a pesky little question. I'll just leave that there for now. No, but we're, we're, we're worshiping beings. We, we are aimed towards what we love the most. 
Paul here is an overflowing cup of worship towards God. Because that's what he's filled up with. Because that is, um, that's the stuff that he's chewing on. As he's pacing back and forth in his room on house arrest, can't go anywhere. The stuff that he's made his life about, letting others know, trying to be that blessing to others. Um, Paul's just absolutely consumed with it. And then his life overflows. He bubbles up, and we're going to see this time and time again. He just bubbles up in, in praise, in doxology, worship. The stuff we know to be true of God ought to be leading us to a life of worship. But the thing is, we are, we can tell what we love the most, right? We can tell what we have given our time and energy, attention to, uh, just by looking at the, the overflow of our lives, looking at the habits that work themselves out in our lives. We can look. We can, we can deduce from patterns in our lives back to what it is we're actually loving and worshiping the most. And the example of Paul here is just like, if you love God, your life will overflow with praise towards God. We are always worshiping something. And, and I, I... I read Paul's example here, and just like soaking in this chapter this week, I was like, I, this is not easy. It, it is, it is not actually possible, really, to have a life that's overflowing in worship towards God um, when we are mm, distracted into oblivion, right? When we go from screen to screen, or when we go from little outrage to little outrage, or to big outrage. Um, when we are so caught up with the, um, the general cultural goings along, and when we're sucked into these things that vie for our attention, that Maybe, maybe don't lead us exactly in the opposite direction of God, but just get us veering off a little bit. We, we wonder, like, why, maybe, where was that, where's that, like, kindled fire for God? Where is that worship that maybe was once there? We've, we've let it, like, get snuffed out with just by being distracted into oblivion with so many other things. And we have so many things going on and like we are full and we're tired and we're busy and all of that is like real and we gotta like own that. But in the midst of that, we are called <laughs> to be genuine worshipers. And we cannot do that when God is like kind of a side piece in our when we try to just kind of graft God in, like I'm going to do my, my life thing, and if I've got a little leftover time, no. We will not have lives that overflow in worship and in praise towards God if God is just kind of a thing that we get around to when it works. It's just not going 
to work that way. And we're all coming at it from very different places, and, and I get that. But one like orienting question I want us to, to ponder as we, as we wrap up today is this. What are you allowing to fill your heart? What is it that you're giving your heart and your mind to? Because there is a tidal wave of blessing from God that Paul is trying to convey here. A couple weeks ago, I was down uh, in Bandon um, looking at a rare bird, obviously. Um, uh, there's a rare like Arctic sea duck that was coming down, hanging around around face rock. Uh, those rocks there coming in and out is... Um, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, this really is my hobby. Like looking at this thing in a scope like a mile away and getting really excited. It's like, it's, it's a little white blob. It's obviously that particular white blob, but man, it's like, God, this is hard to explain to other people. Uh, this is difficult to explain to normal folks. Uh, we were there right after a storm. Uh, the conditions while we were there were sunny and nice. It wasn't windy at all, but we were there in the effects of a storm and the sea was crazy. The sea was wild. And the thing I love about the South Coast um, is it's just like peppered with these awesome rock formations uh, all along. One, uh, one, I love the South Coast because there's fewer people. It's just quieter. It's nice. But two, the, all these rock formations all along the coast, and they're huge. And I just like, after taking my time with a bird and having a good like moment with the common eider, that was awesome. I just like sat and watched for a little bit, and these massive rocks that come 50 feet out of the air. Out of the air, out of the sea. <laughs> it's like, I'll just leave that there. <laughs> We're getting covered with waves. There's nothing they can do about it. It's just a massive, massive swelling of the sea pouring over. And as I was thinking about this text this week, Paul opens up, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Blessing, blessing, blessing is what Paul is trying to say. We're just that. If we would slow down and stop and just let the wave of blessing that God has for us start to just like pour over who we are. We cannot do this when we just run from one thing to the next. We have to stop. We have to create margin. We have to let it wash over us in some Because that's what we're chosen for, to let that blessing not only just filter into our lives, but then seep into the external areas, the places around us. That is the calling of life in Christ. So what are we allowing to fill our hearts? What little, what little tweaks can we do to just put ourselves in the way of the blessing of God. Being here is a great way, it is a great way to practice that. We could just sing songs together that we wouldn't have otherwise sung, probably, right? And we hear words that we might not have otherwise heard, and we have conversations, we, we have fellowship with one another. God's blessing to one another comes through you, through us, through these interactions. So being here, that's a, that's a crucial part. Saints, plural, not, not singular, saints. 
But then what can you do in your personal life? What can you and I do? What little habits can we do to just regularly put ourselves in the way of the blessing of God? Because it is that very blessing that God, how do we live to the praise of his glory? We can do it through worship. We can do it through praise here. And we do. We're going to sing here in just a, a minute as a response to God. But we also praise. We also worship God by letting that blessing filter in and work its way out into our surrounding lives. Okay. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, so many good things from you uh, towards us, so many gifts, um, and we just want to stand right in the way of them and just soak it all up and let that wave pour over. Not just so that we can sit here and be just happy little Christians in a corner. No, that's not, that's not what we want. What we want is for your blessing filtering into our lives so that it can end up uh, in the world around us. Or so teach us how to do that. Uh, teach us to be people over time who fill our hearts with, with God stuff, with things that lead us to worship you. In Jesus' name.